Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Transparency with Diana B, a podcast by wealthmanagement.com. My name is Diana Britton, and I'm the managing editor of wealthmanagement.com. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors and financial services professionals. Guests join me to talk about their own experiences dealing with a struggle. And really, a lot of these things are things that impact everyone, not just people in financial services. My guest today is Melanie Schnollbegun. She's the managing director and head of philanthropy management at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Melanie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. For over 20 years, Melanie has worked with many of the firm's wealthiest and most influential clients to marry their philanthropic interests and financial goals. In 2000, she launched Morgan Stanley Gift, the firm's global donor-advised fund. And last June, she was instrumental in the launch of the firm's Gift Cures program, dedicated to advancing the development of research discoveries into new cures and treatments for a broad range of diseases, something that's especially important right now in the era of COVID-19. And Melanie does all of this while raising two boys and having type 1 diabetes. I mean, talk about a strong and powerful woman. Melanie, um, I, I want to hear more about the Gift Cures initiative, but a lot of your work at Morgan Stanley has really been shaped by your own experience with type 1 diabetes, which is not to be confused with type 2 diabetes. Um, you know, as, as we'll hear more today, type 1 is an autoimmune condition that is not caused by a person's lifestyle. You know, Mel- Melanie herself has been a marathon runner for many, many years. Uh, but just tell us about your story about of, of being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. How did you first know something was wrong? So like many type 1 diabetics, they're living perfectly normal lives. And they're exercising, eating what they want or eating a healthy diet. They're working, they're um, raising children. And for me, it was quite similar, Um, but it was very early into my decision with my husband to start a family. So we Mm. were young kids. I married a long time. I'm married 25 years. And when my husband and I first decided to start a family, it was very difficult for us to get pregnant. And there's a lot of testing that goes on with moms who might have difficulty getting pregnant. Ultimately, we were incredibly blessed and we were um, pregnant, excited. And this was the most amazing thing. I'm an estate tax attorney by training. So I know that one of the most important things to do is to 
protect your life and protect your most important assets. And one of those assets, the most important asset to me and my husband was thinking about our unborn child, but certainly the birth of our brand new baby. Mm. And when I went to go get tested to get life insurance as part of our estate planning, my husband gets a thick envelope back in the mail with an application and um, a beautiful, healthy life insurance policy. And I get a rejection letter. Mm. So that to me was this eye-opening moment in my life, realizing I was just um, in the you know early, early stages of my pregnancy. We thought that everything was going to be great. And ultimately, I realized that this autoimmune disease was going to completely shape my pregnancy, was going to shape the way that I thought about how I ate, how I, um, how I worked out, how I worked. Um, and, have, uh, and unfortunately, it means for many type 1 diabetic moms that they have inherently complicated pregnancies. Right. So that's how I was diagnosed. And I think it's amazing. Um, you know, I think about it as being like a cobbler with holes in my shoes, an estate tax attorney. I spent so much of my life helping others plan their estates. I thought that I was going to be doing everything correctly, planning my estate, and only to realize the complications that a disease which was never on my radar. In fact, I knew nothing about type 1 diabetes when my husband and I got the diagnosis. The first thing that I said was, you know, where's what, what pill do I need to take? What's the pill? What's the cure? Only to begin to realize while pregnant, the very, very specific regimen with a nutritionist and a diabetes educator um, going on that day. That day I left my my gynecologist's office, my, my obstetrician's office, to go and be introduced to a whole new world of endocrinology. And I met my first endocrinologist who frankly not only scared the life out of me, but made me feel that every decision that I made about what I ate and um, my blood sugars and how I worked out could not only compromise me, but could compromise my unborn baby. So that was my introduction. And mm. Diana, what's so fascinating about this disease is it used to be called juvenile diabetes. So right. I was, you know, in my like late 20s. So why would I think that I'm a kid getting type 1 diabetes? But I discovered then through many different leadership positions working on nonprofit organizations serving the type 1 diabetic community, I really under I understand now that type 1 diabetes can affect um, anyone, any socioeconomic background, wealthy, poor, Latino, African-American, white, Jewish, there's no one that can hide from it. And in fact, we know so little about what, what causes it. So there was mm -hmm. no episodic moment in my life, perhaps the pregnancy, but there was no episodic moment in my life that, that I could blame. And I certainly, as a as a new mom to be, what I didn't want to do as I was 
baking this amazing baby inside my belly was to blame my my baby to be for this autoimmune disease. So that's that's how I discovered that I had um, what was then considered gestational diabetes, which after the birth of my son, unfortunately, um, became type one diabetes, a, a, a lifetime form of this autoimmune disease. Yeah. And I mean, I know that there are a lot of misconceptions about diabetes and the different types, you know, and, and there's a stigma, you know, with, with a lot of people assuming it's about lifestyle and, you know, not having being healthy and, you know, because type two is often caused by obesity and an inactive lifestyle. But, you know, as you said, type one, the, you know, some scientists believe it could be caused by genes and environmental factors, but they don't really know, right? Research is still right. ongoing. Um, correct, correct, correct. What are the symptoms of type one? What, what are some of the things you experience on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. so, so I'll tell you when I was first diagnosed, you know, what I noticed now, what I know now that I wish I knew then, there were signs that I just didn't see. Um, frequent urination. Now, remember, I was a brand new, very young pregnant mommy. Right. I had, I just thought, oh my God, this is what pregnant mommies go through. Of course, <sighs> you urinate all the time and you're always looking for a for bathroom. Now, by the way, my kids tell me that that type 1 diabetes is no excuse for this, that mommy invariably four times on a golf course, every time that we get into a car, I have to urinate. But, but, mm. but it, is a, it is a very classic sign. Mm. Um, another sign is weight loss, which is really the opposite of what you were just describing, the obesity, which is usually associated with the type 2 diabetic community. But mm -hmm. weight loss is, um, is, a, is a very common sign. And I've always been a competitive athlete. I've always been very, very, very thin. So to me, I never noticed the or thought of the weight loss as being something that perhaps was happening to me. And I think at the beginning of my pregnancy, um, right at the beginning, I wasn't gaining a lot of weight, not that I expected to gain a fortune of weight, but pregnant moms specifically, the big fear and the reason you have to have such incredible control is because the babies grow disproportionately large inside of their mommy's bellies. Hmm. And for a tiny little woman, I'm five foot one, like 98 pounds soaking wet hmm. at the end of my pregnancy, which I did not go full term at all, was because the baby, my my son now, was so big that mm. um, that my obstetrician decided we needed to have a C-section to make sure that mommy was healthy and that baby was healthy. So again, you know, one of these bizarre, crazy things that happens with type one diabetic moms specifically. Another, but another thing um, that happens, the worst case that can happen with specifically children, but of course adults too, and how many of them unfortunately get diagnosed. I was diagnosed because I was going for life insurance. So I had uh, an examiner come to my house. I peed in a cup. I took some blood and I got 
these unfortunate results in the mail, which really changed my life forever. But many others get diagnosed because they get incredibly sick and the um, many could fall prey if not caught early enough to something which is called a diabetic coma where their blood sugars get so excessively high because they're not treating their blood sugars with insulin. Their pancreas is not producing insulin any longer. And um, for, for many, specifically children, the parents who are feeding them healthy, the kids who are living normal lives, find themselves in, in hospitals um, gravely ill until diagnosed and then um, beginning the right kind of treatment for type 1 diabetics. Uh, and specifically type 1 diabetics are, are, are insulin dependent, unlike type 2 diabetics who hopefully have the opportunity to change the course of their life lose right. weight, begin a healthy eating at, um, regimen, begin a healthy exercise regimen. But for type 1 diabetics, it is um, definitely a course that you need to do all of that. But insulin becomes a requirement in your life. Mm. Can you tell us how it's how having it has changed your life? I mean, in terms of your lifestyle and just having to do these tests and having to do insulin, uh, you know, inject insulin. I know the technology has certainly changed over the years, but what does sort of your daily life look like having uh, diabetes? I'm so lucky to be living in a world where medical advancement and medical technologies has helped me live with this disease to the point where there are many, many, many days where, you know, I don't even think about diabetes, not because I'm not constantly watching everything that I do, which includes what I eat. Um, most diabetics fall prey to a pretty boring um, food regimen because it's just easier. It's just easier for me to know what I eat, the time that I eat it, because it doesn't impact my blood sugars, which is the most dangerous part of diabetes. The part that I spoke to you about before, which, which was before diagnosis, these incredibly high blood sugars, it's equally as, um, as difficult when you have low blood sugars. So for me, because I'm so small and I don't eat a tremendous amount of carbohydrates, I'm still, after all of these years, always still trying to figure out how much insulin to take for food and everything affects that. Mm -hmm. If I have my um, period, if I'm going for a longer run than I anticipated, if I have a very stressful day at work, mm -hmm. working from home right now, you know, this environment of stress is totally different working from home because now I'm not just managing my clients and my business and my team and the demands of that, but balancing it with everything else, you know, preparing healthy food and meals for my kids, making sure that they're studying, making sure that our family stays on the right course and everyone's happy. And all of that stress, that stress, on type 1 diabetics um, also creates um, uh, tremendous difficulties in managing blood sugar. So stress, a common cold, getting my period, 
But COVID, COVID, mm. it's so fascinating that we're talking now. This has become the epicenter of the diabetic community. And um, it's amazing how much a disease that I have, although I have the very small, um, much rarer form of diabetes, but diabetics, as you've read all uh, um, in the press, diabetics are a very compromised community because of COVID, specifically Mm -hmm. because the effects of the virus on type 1 diabetics could begin to cause tremendous sugar, lack of sugar control. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, diabetics are at a much higher risk for difficulties if they get this disease. Uh, Any type are at higher risk. Exactly. 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 So are you sort of, um, you know, changing your lifestyle a little bit right now to, you know, even self-isolate even more than other people because of that risk or how has it changed what you're doing now? Yeah, I would, I would say definitely my, and my friends in, in my type one diabetes community, I think we are all incredibly conscious of the added risk. Mm. Um, but you know, appropriately, like keeping your sanity and your mental state healthy while all of this is going on, but being even more aware of the, of the risk because we're just at a higher risk factor if, if we get the virus. So mm. I've been practicing social distancing, um, in, uh, to some extent, what might be a slight obsession, I'm very, very careful about when I go out to exercise. So as you said, I'm a, I'm a big runner. Last year, I ran my 20th New York City Marathon. And, wow. um, That's incredible. I, oh, thank you. And I, and I really, and I, and I've run since the beginning of forming the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, JDRF's marathon team. We formed that team when I was serving as the president of the New York City chapter of JDRF, but I've always run with the JDRF team and and that community to raise awareness around what is type 1 diabetes and, of course, the funding that the community needs for research to prevent, to treat, and to cure type 1 diabetes. But this year, the New York City Marathon, I kind of think may not be happening. I'm hoping that the race officials see it differently than I do, but I find it hard to believe that 50,000 people from around the world are going to descend right. into the epicenter of this virus here in New yeah. York City, right? I think it's a little hard. Yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to see by November, right? Or is that... Uh... It, exactly. It's, it's always the first Sunday in November. So yeah. maybe we'll have a vaccine by then. Um, maybe we'll perfect the opportunity for there to be more people out together and and running um, a marathon. But even still, just going out for a, a regular run, for me, I'm incredibly careful. I wear a mask. And, um, you know, I think that everyone needs to be so cautious, but this brings a heightened level of awareness. Sure. Yeah, I, I bet. So, I mean, I wanted to talk a little bit about your what you what you're working on at Morgan Stanley, and you know, I, I know that 
having diabetes has really shaped a lot of the work that you do there. So tell us about that. I mean, how has it kind of shaped your life and, and your career uh, trajectory as well? Sure. So it's very hard to walk away from something like this and think that you may not serve a purpose. And everything about my life has always been that I know that there's that I'm here for a purpose. I, I didn't choose diabetes. Some people choose to raise money and awareness for education, for the environment. And by the way, I'm very passionate about both of those. I serve on um, a New York City College board. I'm incredibly passionate about the environment and the effects on how diet and nutrition um, and, um, and food insecurity, how that could have an effect on climate. But I didn't choose those causes. Mm -hmm. Diabetes chose me. Mm -hmm. So in my work, both as a philanthropic advisor and leading the philanthropy management team at Morgan Stanley, as well as being the president of Morgan Stanley Gift, which is the sponsoring nonprofit organization that runs many different philanthropic programs, including Mm -hmm. our firm's donor advised fund. Three years ago, with my team, we were looking at the research and data for where our clients are giving, where our clients were donors to Morgan Stanley Gift, where they're giving. And Mm -hmm. it became inherently apparent to us that one of the top three areas of support was going towards healthcare, Mm -hmm. specifically towards research, that that was a particular passion of our clients and our donor community. So as we were looking at creating a special interest fund, we decided to focus in the sector of healthcare Who would have known that when we launched this program last June, who would have known that a year later we'd be living in the middle of a pandemic? And perhaps we launched this for this particular moment that that maybe the reason three years ago, maybe the reason the data was right, maybe the reason our clients care so much, uh, that they're so thoughtful is that they were looking through and giving through their, their generosity to hopefully try and prevent something like this. But mm-hmm. when we launched Morgan Stanley Gift Cures, the intention was to create an opportunity for there to be an intersection between philanthropic dollars and Mm -hmm. investment opportunities. And in the space of healthcare, almost every cure therapeutic, so you can think of anything in your medicine cabinet and you can absolutely think about this vaccine, which will hopefully be coming to market, which will spare so many other people's lives from COVID. Mm -hmm. In order to in order to create a drug therapeutic, it takes philanthropic dollars at the beginning because those are the risk, uh, those those risky dollars, risk capital that can be used early, early on um, um, in discovery and research to identify promising researchers who are working on the disease. But as those cures move through the process of going from a discovery into the creation of a drug or a medicine, 
it requires other types of capital. Mm. And to complete that process, every drug that's come to market has required investment capital. So Morgan Stanley Gift Cures is an opportunity to educate our client and our donor community on how drug therapeutics are created, the whole process of what happens and why so many amazing promising discoveries die in the vine, probably many, which over the 40 plus years that Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation has been in existence, has been funding, so many of those might have died on the vine because they lacked the the capital to get them to market. And they also may have lacked the business acumen, the opportunity to work with a community of business leaders, um, philanthropic advisors, scientific advisors that could help create drugs. So Mm -hmm. as you can imagine, we've got tremendous academics in the institutions around our country and around the world. Many of them spend their life in labs working on discoveries, but most of them are not drug creators. They don't know how to bring the drug to market. And that was the innovation, the novelty behind Morgan Stanley Gift Cures, bringing together these two forms of capital, philanthropic capital and investment capital that are, that are needed to uh, both discover these amazing, promising um, um, ideas, move them through the life cycle from identification through, um, through the process of translational medicine, and then ultimately bring them to market. So that's what Morgan Stanley Gift Cures was created for back in June of last year. It was launched at our annual conference, conference, which is called The Exchange. It takes place in New York. And four weeks ago, mm-hmm. we made an announcement through Morgan Stanley Gift Cures of the work that we're specifically doing around COVID. Mm. Can you expand a little on that? What, what's the work that you guys are doing around COVID right now? Sure. So we have a tremendous partner in this work. The the nonprofit organization is called Harrington Discovery Institute. Mm -hmm. And um, Harrington Discovery Institute has redirected a portion of its operations to accelerate promising near-term therapies to treat COVID-19 and its clinical complications to battle future pandemic threats. So through a recent transatlantic call for breakthrough medicines and development, Harrington Discovery Institute seeks to immediately increase its 120 project portfolio by as many as 50 new drugs that will be dedicated to developing two different things. First is a next generation of vaccines to avert the pandemic or the next pandemic, actually. And Mm -hmm. as you can imagine, this pandemic will cause many viral mutations. So really working on vaccines for the next pandemic. The second is drugs that will save patients from dying of, of lung injury. As I'm sure you've read, one of the leading concerns for the many who will be diagnosed with COVID and those who haven't even been diagnosed with COVID but had it 
is is lung injury. And we recognize that this will be a huge situation around the world for those that either already had lung injury, cancers, asthmatics, a huge asthmatic population, certainly in our country. Mm-hmm. But even those that didn't even know that they had some lung disease. So we will also be working on drugs that will save really save patients from dying from lung injury in the future. Mm, That's really great. That provides a lot of hope that we need right now. Um, Just, you know, going back to having diabetes, how were you able to overcome the emotional, physical toll that diabetes has taken on your life? Any coping mechanisms that you've had that helped you get through the tough times and any sort of advice that you'd offer to other folks who are struggling with the disease? Yes. So first, I am a a curious cook. I love being in the kitchen. And I'm even doing a program for the family office resources team in a couple of weeks, which is called quarantine cooking. And Mm -hmm. um, the subtitle is cooking without calories. So I'm very conscious of how I cook and I love buying amazing vegetables and finding new cuisines and cooking for my family. So I really use cooking as a therapeutic. That's one thing. Number two is that I continue to exercise regularly. Um, I love my early, early morning yoga. It's become my go-to. It's my time to be in my mind and my body and just to like kind of check in with myself before my kids are up, before my husband's driving me crazy. So that's been um, um, a wonderful retreat for me. I run regularly and when I'm not running, I I go out with masks with my, um, with my kids. We're bikers. And um, so that's the a third. And then the real mental, the real mental game that I give myself is I golf. And, um, you know, golf is this, golf is this amazing, interesting sport when you realize that your entire goal is to get a stationary ball that is on the ground into a hole, that that is the entire goal, and it requires so much mental energy, I allow myself to become almost spiritually engaged on the golf course and realize, you know, if you could get through everything else in life, like, how easy could this freaking game be, right? Like, this gotta be easy. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm sad to report that my handicap isn't demonstrating how easy I think the sport should be, but it certainly helps me uh, with the releasing of both endorphins on the course. And it's wonderful because, because of COVID, when our golf course opened, um, because I'm very concerned about being around wonderful friends, but really anybody else, I only golf with my family. So mm. I've used this amazing time to spend four and a half hours um, um, every Sunday on the golf course with my two beautiful boys and my amazing husband. That's great. That's wonderful. 
Well, I mean, we're just about out of time. I'd love to talk all day about this, but I'd like to thank my guest, Melanie Schnollbegun. Melanie, thank you so much for being on the show and just especially being so open about the issues that you faced. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Diana. You have been a wonderful host and I I love your work. I'm, um, I'm so glad to be just a small part of it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, And if you'd like to reach out to Melanie or if you have any questions about her initiatives, you can email her at melanie.c.schnollbegun at morganstanley.com. Or you can just connect with her on LinkedIn. We'll have all that in the show notes uh, afterwards. And if if you have a struggle yourself and you'd wish to share your story with me, and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at transparencywithdianab at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to Transparency with Diana B. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there is healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.